This podcast deals with violence and contains graphic descriptions that may be triggering for sensitive listeners. What am I looking for? Oh, I was gonna check the battery life, which is good. It's September 2019, and we are at another spaza shop, 10 minutes from the Waka Waka shop, where we began this podcast. This is the shop where Spiu Mahori died. Okay. It used to be the Rasos Paza shop. Now, it is the Royal Supermarket. It used to be a dirty pinkish color. Now, it is a bright, cheerful yellow. It used to be the man the court documents call Abdihashi Sheikh Yusuf standing in the doorway. The man we have come to know as Yusuf. Now it's Abdul. My name is uh, Abdul. I live here in Snake Park since 2015. He greets and smiles to the clients walking through the door. Both grandmothers and children know him. I'm telling him now. What, what is it? Uh, no, I said he... He is coming to record our, our ceremony. I'm going to marry her. Oh, right. When is it? <laughs> a friendly shopkeeper joking with his clients. A scene that could have played out anywhere in the world. Except this isn't anywhere. This is Snake Park. The people we are living in here in Snake Park, 90% of the community are good community. They are good people. And while Abdul is joking with his customers, less than 500 meters away, Two other Ethiopian shopkeepers are trying to salvage what they can after their shop was looted in a xenophobic attack. Even the fridges were taken and the shelves were ripped out of the wall. We try to show them that we are our friends. When we treat them well, then they treat us well also. You are listening to One Night in Snake Park. I'm Elliot Moleva. On the surface, things look almost idyllic at the Royal Supermarket in spring of 2019. But there are tensions here too. It's just that currently, they are under the surface. The underlying causes of the conflict between the foreign shopkeepers and the local South Africans are still here. Fortunately, the tensions don't always come out in the form of looting, vigilante behavior, or violence. Some people engage in discussions. They try to hear each other out in spite of their differences. Reporter Rasmus Bits got to witness one such discussion in front of the royal supermarket between Abdul the shopkeeper and one of his clients who wouldn't give out his name. When it comes to you guys, Ethiopian, uh, Somalians, um, Middle East guys, you're selling f uh, fake stuff most, most of the time. That's the problem with you. You come up with the ideas and you spread the things, you distribute them. If we blacks go to Qatar, go to China, go to any country in the Middle East, we confine with their norms and standards. We don't, we don't do whatever we want. When our foreigners come into this country, they must also confine with our norms. The discussion between Abdul and the community member covers the main points that are always brought up when it comes to foreigners in South Africa. 
that they sell drugs, take jobs of locals, sell expired goods, sell fake products, live and work in South Africa illegally. Abdul tries to defend himself. Let me answer. Let me answer, please. This is my shop. I can allow you to enter and check, even if you find one single fake and one single expired stuff. No, no, no. Let me finish. We are selling here more than a million stuff. They are South African locally product. You? I don't know whether the South African companies are producing a fake stuff. The discussion goes back and forth. Since Abdul isn't able to convince his customer that foreigners aren't all criminals, his next argument is that if they are, they should be dealt with by the police, not through mob justice. So, again, we can say there is a government. The government must handle forcefully those who are doing wrong. Those who are doing drug dealers, those who are kai hijackers, those who are uh, what they say. Uh, but Abdul's customer has given up on the police. If I hear you well, you're saying that the community can't trust the police to do their work, so the community take it into their own hands. Yes, absolutely. Should you then be angry at Abdul, or should you be angry at Ngubane, the commander at Dobsonville police station here? Um, we can't deal directly with the police, but we can deal directly with them. Why can't you deal with the police? Uh, police brutality. Police brutality, the client says. He could have said other things, like corruption or inefficiency. That's what people all over Soweto, and indeed the country, experience and more so the foreign shopkeepers. Out of fear of persecutions, most shop owners do not report this. But pretty much everybody says the police regularly ask them for bribes, but hardly ever show up when they need help. Things are so bad that even the police have given up on the police. I've arrested many people when they go out. They're not sentenced, that's why I don't arrest anymore. This is a recording of a conversation between an off-duty policeman from a Soweto police station and the reporter, Tanya Pampaloni. This isn't an official interview with proper equipment, and we have anonymized his voice, so it might be difficult to hear his rather disturbing message. He says he has completely stopped arresting people because they always get off the hook by paying off someone in the system. What? I'm making enemies for nothing. How many people are out? Get away with murder. Position of unlicensed firearm. Everything. How many are outside free? So you just don't even want to arrest anymore? It's useless. Is the criminal will just do affect you. But is that you? I mean, do you feel like that your colleagues also think that? Yeah, there's that uh, negativity there in that thing. You know, it's, it's not nice. On the nights Pua died, it was the same demoralized police force that were supposed to uphold law and order. Right in front of what is now Abdul's shop. Nombuiselo had to leave her dying son in Norman's arms while she ran down the street, desperate 
to find an ambulance. Her frantic phone calls hadn't worked. The police didn't come. She had to run to find the police herself. The crowd surrounding the shop was angry. A foreigner inside had shot one of their own. A boy had been hit. They saw this as foreigners taking the law into their own hands and the police doing nothing. People in the crowd were fed up. Some perhaps wanted what was on the shelves of the shops. For some, looting felt like justice. But that is only one side of the story. There is another side too. Imagine what it must have been like on the other side of the metal door. To be inside this little square building with no windows and suddenly hear a commotion outside. A crowd gathering and all the terrible stories of attacks on immigrants suddenly running through your mind. According to the court transcripts, two Somali men were inside the shop that night. The documents reveal nothing of what they were talking about, but we know that at least one of them fired a gun through the metal door and killed Spiwe. But who made the decision to shoot? Did they fire any warning shots? Did they shoot to kill or were they just panicking? Was Spiwe in front leading the group or was the bullet not intended for him? Abdul, the current owner of the shop, says he can't help. He wasn't there and he doesn't know what happened. Well, thanks for your time. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We are not going to find Yusuf in Snake Park. Understandably, he did not return. And if he wanted to, the community wouldn't have let him. Abdul also confirms what others have told us. The Somali community is very connected but not necessarily to the rest of the South African society. For the unconnected, it's tricky to navigate the Somali networks, both off and online, not least because many Somalis use different names and aliases. For example, we've come across at least three different names used by Abdul, the friendly shopkeeper who says he is nothing to hide at all. Somalis don't seem to trust strangers who called them up on the phone either. So the only way to find the man who shot Spiwe is to find him through the Somali community. And the center of that is in Mayfair in Johannesburg. Before we leave, Abdul says that we must first speak to a man named Amir, known to others as Amir Sheikh. In Mayfair, he knows everyone and everyone knows him. We know that this is true because we've already spoken to Amir. But so far, he hasn't gotten us any closer to Yusuf. Since we have had no success finding Yusuf with Amir Sheikh's help, we decide to try to locate him on our own. Through the court documents, we have the address he gave the police when he was arrested. And sure enough, it is in Mayfair just above a flower shop. Yeah. Hello, hello. How are you? Good, good. Two shopkeepers don't want their names broadcast, but they don't mind talking. 
in a sense we are looking we're looking for this guy that used to live here we don't know if he lives here still but it's like a few years ago they've both been in mayfair for years and they remember the family of yusuf because i saw her husband on tv and i saw the lady i i, I said to her you know i saw your husband on on tv and he said to me yes she said to me yes because that child was uh, was shot in Soweto. The shop, the, that shop, it was my, my husband's cousin's shop. They were trying to get in and they were ready for them and they shot the, the child. And so, but they were living here in this block where, where you work? Yeah, they were living up here at the flats. The family of that one who shot the, that boy there. And they moved. They didn't even take long because I think the lady told their husband, you know, they saw you, that lady from the shop, she saw you on TV. Because I think they were scared, maybe I'm going to tell them they stay, one of the families stays here. I thought that. And um, you're also saying that you remember that family from upstairs. Um, why do you particularly remember the woman there? Because she was actually a very pleasant woman. She always greeted and always spoke to us. And if they had problems upstairs with the building or something, they would come down to me and ask me to just phone Tupa and ask Tupa to repair or do whatever needs to be done, yeah. The ladies at the florist were on good terms with the family, but they were also puzzled by their lifestyle. They don't like, they don't like light. They put the curtains, even if they can come here, you see here, they put the dark curtains. Even the veranda, they don't mind to close the veranda with the card box. Because they, I don't know, maybe it's their culture, they like that. Maybe it's their culture, maybe they're scared. Because they always stay in the dark place where they come from, because it's always war there, you see. The ladies in the shop liked the family of Yusuf. But like many others, they are critical of foreigners in South Africa in general. But I think it's too much of foreign people in our... We, it's too much of them, really. I'm not saying, I know we all blacks, we all uh, Africans, but it's too much of them. In their countries, these things is not happening. It's very strict. And, and our place is so dirty. Johannesburg was, was not like this. You know, ask Margaret, our, cust- our customers who were staying around here, they're moving. I've only, the only problem I've got against foreigners coming in here, they're open businesses, but very few of them employ South African people. They will employ, they will bring somebody across from their country to come and help them, but they don't employ South African people. They don't know where the family moved, but they suggest that we head across the railroad tracks to the central part of Mayfair, the part they call Little Mogadishu. And so last thing was like you were saying you thought that maybe that family had moved somewhere else nearby? Yes. Where, where is that? It's somewhere in Mayfair. What is that? place where, where the Somalians move to when they move away from here? That side, over there. Over the bridge, yeah. Near the station. It's, it, it's only them. Yes. It's only them. Those shops is only Somali. Most is, shops, yeah. yeah. Near uh, the Mayfair station. Rasma Spitz begins asking around to find the family of Yosef and eventually him to get his side of the story. 
but it appears to be harder than anticipated. I don't know the guys. I know the snake park, I know the violence that erupted there in 2015. Yeah. But actually, I don't know Yusuf because so many people are called Yusuf Mohammed, you see. In Little Mogadishu, no one trusts a journalist, especially a white foreigner wandering around the predominantly Somali neighborhood. Somebody that looks like he could be CIA. Um, I walked into an internet cafe, which was really crowded. It was full of people in there. Um, and I started chatting to people, asking around. Um, but what happened was that when people sort of had a look at me, they started slowly drifting out of the shop until eventually um, I was actually standing in the shop alone. Everyone had left, even the, even the person behind the counter. It was pretty clear that they didn't want to talk to me. They didn't want to, you know, engage with me at all. Um, and then uh, I walked outside and, and next to the shop, everyone was standing, at least the, the shop attendant was. And I asked him what the problem was. And he said that uh, he was not prepared to really talk to uh, somebody from the CIA. To begin to unravel the reasons for this distrust is far beyond the scope of this podcast. But it isn't all that strange considering the decades of unrest, civil war and conflict that has ravaged Somalia and the Somali community across the globe. Factional battles often influenced by foreign interests run deep and are not a thing of the past. In December 2019, Soon after our visit to Mayfair, the terrorist group Al-Shabaab killed more than 85 people in a bomb attack in the real Mogadishu in Somalia. Whatever the reasons, it is clear that we will get nowhere asking for Yosef in Mayfair or asking about anything else really. The answer is always the same. Yeah, I don't know where he is, but yeah, exactly, Sheikh Amir. Huh? So, Amir Sheikh. Okay, I'm heading over to see Sheikh Amir at the uh, Somali Community Board um, in Mayfair. We know where to find Amir Sheikh. He works out of the first floor of a linoleum tiled building in Mayfair, just above the spice shop across from the halal butcher. I've been there myself and have spoken to his deputy. And my colleague Tanya has met Amir three times. For now, I'm hoping that Sheikh Amir will shed some light on this. Um, obviously, we don't know the involvement of the Somali community. Early in our research for the story, Amir's name popped up several times. He is the chairperson for the Somali Community Board and appears to be the de facto spokesperson for the entire Somali community in Johannesburg, if not the entire country. Hello. Hi. How are you? Hi. How are you? Good. Sorry, The reason we tried locating Yusuf without his help isn't that he wouldn't speak to us, because Amir speaks a lot and often. Amir also speaks to the media on behalf of not only the Somalis in Johannesburg, but all the African migrants in the country as the spokesperson for the African Diaspora Forum. He's a big man in every way and welcomes Tanya into his office. Well, now Mayfair is actually, what I can term actually, a mixed area 
with all South Africans actually racist, that is your white, your blacks, your colored Indians, and migrants from 35 African and Asian countries. So it's the New York of actually Johannesburg. Pretty much all Somalis who come to South Africa immediately end up in Mayfair when they arrive. From here, Amir says, someone will show them the ropes and help them navigate South Africa. And Mayfair is a touching point and the departing point for any Somali in South Africa. Irrespective of which place he is in South Africa, this is a touching point. And when you say touch point, do you mean when people arrive When people here? arrive, this is the first place they arrived, and this is where they start from. Through the network of contacts in Mayfair, most Somalis get a job, typically in a shop in a township or a rural area. The hub of the Somali community is Mayfair, and uh, from there they actually go to any other part of the country. And most of the Somali businesses, any Somali, any Somali entrepreneur who is successful have also a stake in Mayfair and business around in Mayfair. Amir sits at the center of the Somali network in South Africa. The migrants he represents are often refugees or asylum seekers who have left Somalia in search of a better life, just like Amir himself. No, what, what brought me is actually, okay, like any other person, what brought me, basics. Then, uh, like anybody, was actually to have a better life, to further my studies, get a place of sanity where at least I can enjoy a relative peace. Nothing much could have happened actually in Somalia if I stayed. So I took this bold decision and uh, the family moved actually, you know, relocated to Kenya. I spent some years there, but you know, I had to leave and at least come here, better my life, better my actually educations and all that aspect and get a relative peace, a place that I will not actually worry whether I will be gone tomorrow. A journey like Amir's from Somalia via Kenya to South Africa is common among Somalis living in South Africa. Like Amir, many have lived in other countries and have wives, children, and family members abroad. The Somali network doesn't only exist in South Africa, but all over the world. It's almost as if the Somali society exists without a territory, independent in all but name, with an independent economy, family, clan structures, and information networks. In this quasi-official system, Amir is the unofficial mayor of Little Mogadishu in Johannesburg. But the organization he represents connects the entire country. Yeah, we have got offices yeah. and affiliates all over the country. Okay. It's not necessarily to be Cape Town. We can even have three offices in Cape Town. Okay. And then in the Eastern Cape, the East London and Port Elizabeth are distance apart. So we can have at least one representative in East London catering for that aspect and one in Port Elizabeth. In Limbobo, for example, we have got one in Petersburg. In Vembe district, they organize themselves into a structure and we give them the recognition letter and that is how they are. So it's not necessary. This is for the interest of Somali. Amir almost always speaks for the Somalis in South Africa. But from his office in Mayfair, he doesn't live or work like them. Unlike Yusuf, the man who shot Spiwe, he doesn't spend days and nights in the back room of his puzzle shop. But plenty other Somalis do, 
One of them is Abdul, the current owner of the shop in Snake Park. Like Yosef did, Abdul also lives with his family in Mayfair when he isn't working in Snake Park. So usually in a week I came two times. In a week, two times I came, then visit them, give them what they need, then I go back to my work. So It was only yesterday we met Abdul in Snake Park. But in Mayfair, he looks like a different person. So I was just seeing you now in the park when you were coming, walking over to me. You look, um, what can I say? Can I, can I say you look a bit more relaxed than when I saw you yesterday? Definitely, yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh, I'm quite relaxed now because since yesterday, I, I didn't work, I was not working last night. I was with my, uh, I was having a time with my family. And you almost even look a bit, uh, I don't know, I feel like when you're in the shop, you look more older even, even though you're not, you're, <laughs> does it make sense to you? Uh, Maybe it's your authority there. To work a shop is very hard. So sometimes you offload a full track, you help the customer, you pack the stuff. So most of the time you are wearing, uh, you are wearing uh, clothes that definitely look like dusty and older. But when you are coming to town or somewhere, you have to make up. You have to, you have to look like a gentleman. Abdul is a different generation from Amir, and yet. Their stories are very similar. Abdul fled Mogadishu via Kenya during an Ethiopian intervention in the conflict between the Somali government and the Islamic militants. Getting out, he says, he first had to dodge Ethiopian grenades, followed by militia groups in the desert. It took me to arrive, I think it was five days, from Mogadishu to Nairobi, because it was very difficult to cross the border. We were five that time, five guys. Then they hide us in a truck. In Nairobi, Abdul plugged into the Somali networks. His case was discussed. And in the end, he decided, with his family's blessing, to head to South Africa, even though the journey would be dangerous. It was 50-50 whether I will reach in South Africa or whether I will die. As a refugee without documents, Abdul couldn't take a plane to Johannesburg. His options were to cross half the continent overland or to do so in a boat. And even though Abdul had never been on a boat before, he decided that sailing would be the best option. It's like uh, a small boat that the immigra immigra uh, immigrants who are going to uh, European countries, those when they are uh, living in Libya to Italy, something like that, but it's a little bit bigger. But Abdul hadn't been in the little boat for long before he began to regret his decision. It was very dark, very horrible. After one hour in our journey in, in the sea, a rain come. I remember it was a wooden boat. When the rain come, the engine failed to move the water out. Then we organized ourselves to do the water, whatever we can do. 
So to scoop the water out with like your hand or whatever bowl or cup you have? Or? Uh, we, uh, the captain, I don't know, or those uh, workers of that boat, they give us something like a bigger container, something that we can move the water. So it was very difficult. On the seventh day when we arrived the sea coast of Mozambique, I was not able to move because when I came down, the, the earth was shaking. Oh, because so it was because you gotten used to the movement of the sea. Exactly, exactly. After arriving on the coast of Mozambique, Abdul continued overland to the South African border, where he could eventually apply for asylum. After the first part of the journey, this felt pretty easy, and soon after, Abdul found himself in Mayfair. But here, he encountered an unexpected problem. When I arrived in Mayfair, it was a winter, it was very cold. I'm from a nation that the weather is always hot. It was very difficult for me. I was sleeping in a hotel. Then 24 hours I was under a blanket. When I come out, I feel like I'm in fridge. Did you think that time I've made a terrible mistake coming here because it's so cold that one have to be under the blanket all day long? In uh, somehow, when you feel so cold, an endless cold. Then you feel, what kind of country is this? Why it's so cold? It's trouble here. Then you have to I excuse yourself. Uh, then you excuse. I excuse myself. I say, no, at least if I get a job, I can support my family, can support my life, better future. Then you have to be stronger and be patient. Then whatever happened, then you, are, you have an ambition. You can go forward. Abdul's life in South Africa began exactly like Amir Sheikh says most Somalis do. He arrived in Mayfair, where a clan member helped him get a low position at a small shop in Pumalang. But then gradually, as he learned the trade and saved up money, he rose in the ranks until now, where he owns his own shop in Snake Park. It is a large, well-kept and successful shop. Abdul is able to live in Mayfair with his wife and child, but his journey has been dangerous, as it often is for Somalis who flee. And it remains dangerous in South Africa, where they typically do business in rural areas and townships. Here, safety is a concern, because, as Amir Sheikh tells Tanya, the rule of law doesn't apply. And do you think that most of the kind of the, the, those hundred to hundred and fifty people that are killed each year in mm -hmm. in South Africa that are Somalis are are related to petty crime, or would you talk? I mean, they are working. If if you're working in kind of dangerous communities, mm -hmm. then one can be actually a business competitions with the locals who could not survive because of the much influx. Of the informal, uh, of, of the migrant, considering the fact that business in the townships are not regulated and bylaws are not enforced the way they enforce it, actually, posh areas. You can do what you want in something today in Brandberg, in Rosebank, but in townships you can do whatever you want. So, because of this unregulated business and lack of actually bylaws enforcement, many of the locals 
actually who could not cope with this business uh, gang up against form associations in order to make sure that this business don't survive the somalis are the single most successful group in the economy of small shops in the townships they are skilled and experienced in working independently as a community in areas to which the power of state doesn't always extend this is also what puts them in danger this is the conflict the somalis are in amir has to navigate conflict he wants his countrymen to be protected but isn't it in part the lack of regulation that makes them successful In the next episode we will try to make sense of the delicate balance between the danger and the profit which the Somalis must try to maintain and we will also look further into whose interest lies in shifting that balance along with this we continue our search for Yusuf to gain perspective in what happened the night Spur Mahori died in Snake Park because in spite of his hospitality the help we have gotten from Amir Sheikh hasn't gotten us very far the most concrete help he has given us is a list of phone numbers of shopkeepers in Snake Park people who will know what happened or people who will know Yusuf okay Hello. Hello, hello. Uh you are speaking to Rasmus Pitts. Um how are you? But when we call the contacts he has given us, people either don't want to talk or say they need to ask him first. Let me ask him and confirm from him because I don't know you and I don't oh. I cannot talk something I don't know. I'm not denying anything. It feels like we are stuck or caught in a feedback loop where Amir points us towards people who then points us back to Amir. Okay. We, we will find out, we will find out. I'll help you. We will work together. Next time on One Night in Snake Park. So you're like in Mexico, it's either you join yeah. them yeah. or you suffer. So it's yeah. better to join and assume like, okay, yeah. because you're safe. Paying 500, yeah. then losing 50,000, being robbed every single right. weekend. Right. Reporting for this podcast by Tanya Pampaloni, Elliot Moleba, Neora Khajani, and Rasmus Bits. Additional reporting by Paul McNeely, and recording assistance by Andreas Hammer Holmefield. Original score by John Batman. Editing by Rasmus Bits. Tanya Pampaloni. is executive producer Jedi Ramalapa is the editor in chief of Sound Africa